Imagine yourself under a starry sky around the warm glow of the sacred fire as your hosts, Saren Odinson, Jim Two Snakes, and Caitlin Stormbreaker talk about shamanism, animism, books, science, psychology, pop culture, and more. Welcome to a show inspired by those late-night conversations by real-life spiritual practitioners. Won't you come and join us around Grandfather Fire? Hail to you, O blustery winds. Hail to you, O biting cold. Hail to you, O frozen north. Hail to you, the snow behold. Hail to you, O icy breath of frostiness and quiet. Hail to you, the snowy down that blankets all in silence. Hail to you, the quietness, the gentle breeze a-blowin', and all the hoary frost and rime reminds us of our origins. O hail to you, O deepest cold, O frigid, freezing frost. Hail to you, elder ancestor. You, the greatest cost. You, who has taken so many of us in icy and yet warm embrace, who showed us on strange paths beneath the frozen lakes. You, carve the greatest paths upon the earthen home from glaciers we ranged and where we once did roam O hail to you O sons and daughters of Niflheim and ice hail O hail O frosty O Ymirkari I so hail to you, the winter gods, hail to you, O frost, hail to you in all the winters, our ancestors. Hail to you, O holy ones. Let us gather around our fires, our hearths, and remember why we shiver and why we push away the dark. Hail to you, O icy ones, from which the waters flow. Let us curse not your iciness. Let us gather close. Let us gather near and remember all that we hold dear. Hail to you, ice and mist. That's the Ohio. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Around Grandfather Fire. You're listening to episode number 34. I am Jim Two Snakes, joined by my good friends and co-hosts, Saren Thodson and Caitlin Stormbreaker. How's everybody doing tonight? Having a seating arrangement issue at the moment. My, uh, <laughs> my little co-pilot here seems to think it's necessary to join me every time we have these talks. and I have to- I noticed. <laughs> I have to remove the uh, the wire from underneath her, otherwise she's going to yank my headphones off. <laughs> she always loves it when you're podcasting. Yes. What about you, Sarah? How are you doing? Oh, I'm good now that uh, the uh, trance is wearing off. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking you were going into it a little deep tonight. How about that? 
Yeah, that was, ooh, that's, impo- <laughs> that's yep. <laughs> <laughs> the need worked. The it does. Good. Yep. Well, I'm, I'm sure uh, snow and ice and cold is not foreign to our guests, but it's certainly not anything that's affecting him right now. <laughs> One hopes. <laughs> so just uh, thank you for the segue. This, uh, everybody joining us tonight on our 34th episode of Around the Grandfather Fire is John Beckett. And I am so pleased to have you on, John. Great to be here. Thanks for the uh, the invitation. And uh, you are correct. There was uh, we, uh, we 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 do get snow down here in Texas occasionally, but uh, but not often and um, uh, rarely this early. So um, um, <laughs> the, the, the 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 local weather guys were talking up the chance of snow and sleet this morning, and the temperature never got below thirty eight. So oh goodness, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. So now I, I happened I, to be in Houston one year when there was snow and ice that hit the ground and it was really funny. You could tell all the people that had moved from down north from up north because we were all, you know, driving around like, what's the problem? It's just a dusting, but it was, it was an emergency. <laughs> I, Dallas, Fort Worth, where, where I am, uh, you know, we get enough snow that at least the, the, the people who, who, who think anyway, um, have enough experience with it. They got a half an idea of what to do. Houston, they never see it. And they, 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 they freak out worse than we do. <laughs> it seems to be always the way is uh, people forget, Hey, this is what the, the snow on the ground feels like underneath the tires and the feet. Yep. Time to walk like a penguin folks. <laughs> I know a couple of girls from Brownsville way down there, right at the, the, the border of Mexico. And they got, like two inches one year and I asked them cause they're up here working and um, I asked them what happens when you guys get snow down there. And they said the whole town shuts down. Nobody knows what to do, but because a lot of them are up here working at the greenhouse and that, those winter months, they fare just fine. And they've all got four wheel drive vehicles anyway. So they just blow right through it. So kind of moving off of the, uh, the topic of weather, although we're going to come back to it because of your, your latest posts and such, uh, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, give yourself a little bit of an introduction? So I am, I'm John Beckett. Uh, I'm a Druid in the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids. I'm also a, a member of ADF, although I hold no rank within that order. I, uh, my, my primary religious identity is as a polytheist, um, one who, um, to use the anomalous Thracians definition, uh, holds a religious regard for many real gods. Um, I've been blogging since 2008, uh, since 2013. I have been part of the Pathios Pagan channel. Pathios being the largest uh, multi-faith religious website in the world. I have two books out, um, The Path of Paganism, which came out in uh, 2017, and Paganism in Depth, The Polytheist Approach, which came out earlier this year. I'm I'm originally from Tennessee, um, lived for a while in Indiana, um, 
went from there to Georgia. I came to North Texas in 2001, and I've been here ever since. So um, that's that's me in a nutshell. Excellent. So um, what kind of got you the kick in the butt to, to write those two books? <laughs> uh, we could we could we could spend a while on that. Uh, <laughs> I always wanted to write a book since I was as far back as I can remember to kindergarten and probably before I wanted to write a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't know what I was going to write it write it all, but I just wanted to write a book. Um. I started blogging in 2008 because I just wanted to work through some things and I wanted to work through them in public. I wanted to, uh, I had some things I wanted to say, some conversations I wanted to try to, um, um, I, some conversations I wanted to try to, um, uh, to, to have within the wider community. Shortly after I moved to Patheos, I, people started asking me, when are you going to write a book? When are you going to write a book? <laughs> And my standard response was, I don't have a book-shaped work in me. And that's not my phrase, but I can't remember who I stole it from. Um, I'm good at kicking out 1,000 to 2,000 words on the topic of the day. Uh, Putting together a 90,000-word volume is a a different animal. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, shortly after that… um, I started hearing from the goddess Bridget. Mm-hmm. Now she is, she is her statue is on my altar, but I have no oaths with her. Mm-hmm. But she was the one who showed up and said, "Write the book." <laughs> okay. Um, so it's one thing when people ask you to do stuff with when a goddess says write the book, then that kind of raises the urgency a bit. I started working on it, and it went pretty much nowhere for about a year. And then I heard from a different goddess, who, the Morrigan, who I was not oath to at the time, but I am now, uh, who said, finish Bridget's work before I come for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, nothing man. ominous about that. And I didn't know exactly what that meant, but I had several ideas, and none of them were pleasant. <laughs> I got the from that point. I got the book finished in about four months. Um, got it. Um, got it finished. Um, found uh, I was going to self-publish, and Christopher Hughes, the head of the Anglesey Druid Order, and a dear friend and a fabulous man uh said no you have to you have to 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 show it to Llewellyn uh Llewellyn is the biggest publishing house in in all of pagandom they can get that book in more hands and okay and Llewellyn's not going to want this book and what do you have to lose so so uh I emailed Alicia uh, Alicia Gallo who I had met at a a gathering uh, a few years ago and she said, yeah, send it on, and I, I sent it to her, and she said, yeah, I think we like this, and um, um, that, was in, um, that was in early 2016, and it took about 13 months from that point to get the book actually out 
into people's hands. Um, mm-hmm. And the second book was similar. Um, I'm most authors tend to sign a book contract and then go write the book. Um, I'm I write the book and then then okay here you want this. In part because I, I don't know, I, I'm not confident about how long it's going to take me to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a day job. I, I, I'm an engineer. Uh, that takes up a good bit of my time. Uh, I don't know when I'm going to be, how much, how much, how far long it's going to take me to write a book. And so I don't want to sign up for something I can't, um, um, I, I may not be able to deliver. The other Fair. side of that is, unlike people who are writing for a living, I'm not dependent on a book advance to. Um, uh, to live on while I'm writing the book. Right. So, um, yeah, that's um, um, th- th- those those two books came together rather similarly. Uh, the first one I had to be kicked in the butt a couple times to get going on it. Um, I don't have a third book in the works yet. I've been told there will be another book. Um, I, it's not clear what direction that book is going to take. And nobody's screaming at me just yet for it. So we will see how things go in the coming months and years. Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, even, even though my first book was a, an anthology, it still took me about three or four years to put together. So I really feel you on having to really take the time to cultivate it. And granted, you wrote yours a lot quicker than mine ended up being. Uh, your editing process, you said it was 13 months. And mine took about that long. Yeah, so it, all told, from beginning to end, it took me about three or four years to slap uh, the calling to the ans- to, calling to our ancestors together. So I definitely, I feel you. <laughs> and each one's a, a, a work. And you I don't know if you ever got to this point of where, okay, I've got to put this project down and actually submit it now because I'm never going to be quite satisfied with it. Um, publishing, publishing houses have deadlines. So that kind of... Uh, um, and, and, and I am kind of, I'm, I'm pretty obsessive about deadlines. So, um, um, you know, you give me a deadline, I'm going to hit it. Well, and Fair. I think there, I think there comes a point with the book too, where it's good enough is good enough, you know? That's one of the things in, in, in writing, uh, really in anything in life is knowing when something is good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but that first edit, the book goes from being 75% done to being 90% done. And the second edit, it goes from being 90% done to 95. And the third, it goes from 95 to 96. And your, your, your incremental improvement keeps getting smaller and smaller. And, and you can take it so far that you don't make it better, you make it worse. Right. So, um, yeah, anywhere – Writing, especially, but really anything in life, is knowing when, knowing when you've 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 done a good job. It's not just good; it's good. Yeah, it's good. It fulfills the its mission. Mm-hmm. It's something you can be proud of. Um, it's not perfect, but it's time to let this thing go from being incubated to being uh, to being manifest in this world, and move on to something else. Absolutely. And one thing that I run into, because I'm a fiction writer, but I'm in a very unique position in my household is my husband has a very good job. So I can be a stay at home, 
no income coming in type of writer to where that's the only thing I do. But what I struggle with often is going back to edit my first draft. Like I, they always say, don't ever edit your first draft. Your first draft is just a bunch of thoughts thrown together on a piece of paper. And then your second draft is when you go back to your first draft and say, okay, how do I polish this? How do I make it better? And taking that approach has actually made my writing a lot easier and a lot more enjoyable because just like you, ever since I knew what a book was, I wanted to write one because I've loved books since I was a very small child, thanks to my mother. And I, it's, I covet them and I hoard them and they're like, I am the dragon of books. They're my treasures and my precious. And I want somebody <laughs> to look at my book and think the same thing about that. So kind of transitioning over from the process of, of getting your, your words onto the paper. Um, I really wanted to kind of tackle the, the latest posts you made on Pathos because, well, it's, it's a bend we've had here on the show uh, for, for anybody who's listened to the show for any length of time knows that a lot of the themes that you touch on your latest couple of pieces are things that we're very concerned about on the show. Um, and something that you, you know, in the beginning of the latest, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, strategies and storms, I believe it's called. Yes. Strategies and tactics uh, you talk about is, is when, your audience doesn't quite get it. At what point do you go back and, and, and re-explain things? Yeah. Well, it's like I said at the beginning of that post, if two or three people don't get it, that's on them. Uh, there's always going to be people who just, they, they don't have the context. Uh, they scanned it instead of reading it. Uh, they have a completely different worldview. Uh, they want to, they want to be antagonistic. Uh, I don't worry about those people. When I have one or two people who I know and trust who don't get it, or when I have a bunch of ordinary readers who don't get it, eh, that's probably me. And at that point, I need to go back and do a better job of, of presenting the, uh, the, the, the thoughts the ideas I have and my reasoning behind them. Well, I appreciate that you do that because the, in my own writing on a lot of the, the climate uh, challenges we have in front of us and a lot of the, the writing that I've done on talking about the polytheist perspective on these things. Um, I've had to do a lot of, of going back and going over. Well, a lot of people are raising concerns about, well, one of the things that uh, somebody that I have a great deal of respect for PSVL laid out for me was um, M noted, Hey, well, what about all the disabled people? Uh, when, when you come into the calculus for how we go into the future with all these, these challenges in front of us, peak oil, climate change. And I, I sat down with, with uh, Ayer's words and I really thought about it and I went, well, you know, I have to actually approach this as, as a disabled person. Like I can't live without my insulin when we're talking about a powered down future. I mean, I actually need to approach the fact that what's that going to look like for a diabetic, for instance, um, you know, what challenges am I going to have to have to deal with personally? Um, and, and that was kind of, it's kind of a blind spot that not as much of the literature talks about. It is. Um, there is a, um, when you start talking about 
uh, about climate change, about uh, peak oil, uh, about the the fact that perpetual growth is not possible. Um, different people have different ideas, and different people have different ideas of what would be a good solution. And the I like I'm glad that you brought up the one that you mentioned because there's a there's a group of people who would love to go back to. Um, who would love to go back to pre-industrial technology. Well, very good. A lot of people are going to die. You know, diabetics, nope. diabetics are going to die. Uh, people who are in wheelchairs are going to die. Uh, people with all kinds of diseases uh, who live very good, uh, very good, manageable, enjoyable, fulfilling lives are going to die because modern medicine, modern technology keeps them alive. Um, and a lot of the people who are clamoring for this pre-industrial lifestyle, um, yeah, they're not thinking that through. Now, one of the points I try to make periodically is you know, to encourage people to remember that that we are not the center of the universe. Humans are one species on the earth. They are not the only species on the earth. We, we have enriched ourselves and exploded our numbers at the cost to significant to, to, to many other species. Um, and to be honest, and, and, and the industrial West has enriched ourselves at the cost of the poverty of, of many other humans living in other parts of the world. We can, we can take, we can ratchet that back, but the cost that I'm willing to accept for us as a species, I'm not so willing to accept for individuals. And there's a there's a bit of a philosophical disconnect there that I freely admit. Um, yes, humans have no have, have no more inherent right to the earth than other species, but but I don't want to see my diabetic friends die either. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, and and I I freely admit there's a there's a there's a philos there's an ethical disconnect there. Um, but I also like to point out that. Um, all talk of the the what the final state of what I call the long descent it will be, nobody knows. I am an engineer. Um, I have some faith in technology. I don't have ultimate faith in technology. I I do not think we're going to see a Star Trek future. I do think that. Humans are we're, – we're resilient, we are innovative, we're imaginative, uh, we're stubborn as hell. Um, I do not see us going back to a pre-industrial lifestyle. Um, I may be wrong. Um, I don't think anybody alive today is going to see the bottom of where we're going. Um, my my 
my priorities uh, two separate priorities from a from a material standpoint from a physical standpoint my concern is that we do the best we can with what we have right now trying to uh, you know to re, you know, reduce the carbon emissions to um, um, we're not going to it's too late to reverse climate change but to minimize the uh, uh, minimize the effects to try to be prepared for what's going to happen when all these these people who live you know within 20 feet of the uh, of, of sea level have to go somewhere uh, we need to be preparing for that I'm more concerned about what we do in response. It's, it's uh, call me a defeatist if you like. I think it's too late to prevent um, the worst of what's coming. Um, we just got to deal with it. I think it's, I think it's okay to think of the, the precautionary measures to take as humans for what may happen or possibly will happen. Um, and I do believe that where we're at with climate change, we can only slow it down at this point. There's no real stopping it, but we can yes. at least slow it down quite yes. a bit. Um, but one thing that you talk about in your article, and I think you're kind of skirting around it right now, um, but I thought it was a, a beautiful thing, was talking about living with the first sight or living through the first sight instead of in the second sight. Now for me, and I, I want your take on it as well, but the way I see these two things is the first sight is being totally aware of what is in front of you and what it is. Like I'm sitting at my desk right now. It is made of wood and it has paint on it. And its function is to hold things like my computer and all of my supplies. But what it is to me is it is is my second sight. It is a device that helps me complete work. So looking at things through the first sight for me is seeing something for what it is at face value and assessing it from that point. But can you explain further what you meant by the first sight versus the second sight? Well, the terms, I think we all know what we mean by second sight. Um, uh, the first sight comes from, uh, from, from Terry Pratchett. Um, mm -hmm. And his, and I'm, I'm, I don't have it in front of me right now, but I'm trying to remember his, his, his idea of first sight is when you see what's really there and not what everybody tells you is supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. And I use that term in the context of, uh, of and, and, and I'm glad we took this post, yeah, I'm glad we, we, we took this conversation the direction we did because we started out talking about the real tangible physical a, a process of climate change and the real tangible this world impact it's going to have on 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 people who are alive today people who will be born in the future on the human species on other species when i talk about the storm when i talk about tower time all these these strange sounding names um Climate change is part of that. It is not the whole thing. Mm -hmm. About 2010, 2011, um, a lot of people I'm in contact with, um, particularly those in the Morrigan community, started getting a message, get ready, a storm is coming. Get ready, a storm is coming. I think the storm got here in 2016, and I'm not talking about Trump. 
um, not only talking about Trump. Um, I, I keep hearing more and more and more people who who talk about um, otherworldly experiences. Um, I had a uh, um, I had a vision one morning. I don't even want to call it a vision. I saw a bird that was glowing green in a way that birds just don't glow green. Uh, I saw what I'm convinced that was an otherworldly bird, a bird from the 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 the, the other world, uh, the land of the gods and ancestors, who somehow managed to make its way here. Mm -hmm. um, people talk about we in the the, in the 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 pagan community likes to talk about the veil between the worlds, the the veil that separates the again the world of the living from the world of the dead. Uh, about that time, a lot of us started getting the idea. You know, of course, the other idea is the veil gets thin at Samhain. And also at Beltane, right. um, a lot of people right around that 2016 time uh, started getting the impression that that veil is shredded. It's just not there anymore. And things that normally could only barely kind of come across at Samhain and Beltane, now they come across any old time they please. Um, all of these things that I'll call high strangeness it just keeps it's just got, gotten stronger and stronger and stronger and something is behind that and what is it i don't know i've done some i've done some speculation on it i've talked about it when i was at mystic south in atlanta uh this past year uh past year back in july um i corralled as many people as I could what do you see what's going on um, what are you seeing with the fair folk and how they're becoming more having more of a, of a pre tangible presence in this world um, what are you hearing from your gods uh, you know the Morrigan has been on a recruiting mission for several years um, Brigid has been quietly recruiting quite a few people um i'm not affiliated with any of the norse deities but some of my um some of my uh heathen friends tell me odin is doing the same thing oh yeah oh yes <laughs> something's going on um i don't know what it is but i see I see all of this otherworldly stuff going on. I see all this activity from the deities with whom I'm affiliated or, or, or have some knowledge of. Um, and then I see all this stuff going on in this world with climate change, with the rise of nationalism, with the decline of the American empire. Um, all of this stuff is going on at once, and it's really, really complicated. And... As the post that you you, you referenced today, the uh, strategies and tactics for for living during the storm or, or whatever it was I called it, um, I don't really know what what's causing. None of us do, but we know there are things we can do. And um, getting back around to your question about first sight and second sight, 
it's important that we have a strong first sight in this, that we see things as they really are. And when we see things that are otherworldly in nature, we see them as otherworldly and not try to rationalize them away because we're mm-hmm. afraid our atheist friends are going to make fun of us. Um, I was in Ireland last year um, with a small group. Uh, we did all the stuff that good pagans do in Ireland. Went to went to went, went to Newgrange. Uh, uh, we went to Rathcrogan and went to the cave of the Morrigan and and we went to Fornox, which is a a tomb that dates somewhere around to, to, to somewhere around 2500 BCE. Whoa. Um, it's actually newer than it's actually newer than the the Newgrange, and there's a long story there that I won't uh, I, I, I won't take up the time to, to to do. But once we were inside, um, I was the last one in, uh, to, to go in, and here comes this little dog, and I tried to stop the dog from coming in because I had this vision of the dog coming in and not wanting to get out, and we've got to go because. Uh, four knocks, it stays locked. You have to go check out the key. When you're done, you lock it back up and take the key back and get your 20-euro deposit back. Um, dog went around me like I wasn't there. Dog went around, checked everybody out, went back outside. We were looking at the rock art inside the tomb and uh, talking about it. and um, All of a sudden, we heard this howl like no dog any of us had ever heard. And I step outside, and now I finally actually look at the dog. And it's this small, off-white dog, nothing remarkable there, but its eyes are solid black. And on its face are these red markings, like the dog dipped its fingers if a dog had fingers, into red ochre and brushed them across his face. Red markings, white animal, Celtic lands, you are not a creature of this world. <laughs> um, and the, 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 it was like the dog was saying, okay, y'all aren't as clueless as most of the humans who come here, but it's time for you to go. So, so we locked up and 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 we left. Um, there were six of us in that um, you know, six of us in that um, uh, traveling party, and you know we, including my wife, who's a Methodist, um, we all agree that that was not an ordinary dog. And it's important to see that as not an ordinary dog, and not to just write it off as the oh the dog fell in the mud, and there's 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 uh, uh, the Irish equivalent of Georgia red clay on its face, and um, it just happened to make a sound that you couldn't hear right because you were inside that chain. No, no, don't don't rationalize it away. Um, Use that first sight. See things for what they are, and not what you've been told that they're supposed to be. Yeah, that's a that's really cool that you are talking about that. Um, and I, I hope that more people get that message and kind of hold on to it because I think it's important not just to 
see the world as it is, but also to see the signs that are coming through. You know, we need to stop ignoring those signs and we need to start paying attention to what they are and what they're saying. You know, and if you're concerned about over-rationalizing them or seeing signs when there aren't any, you know, get some divination, ask somebody who's a part of that path, you know, ask questions. We love questions on the show. Ask us questions. We'll answer them all. Um, Go ahead. Sometimes, sometimes a strange light in the middle of the night is just your neighbor playing with a flashlight. Sometimes, yeah. Um, but sometimes it's not. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, most, regardless of their religion, regardless of their worldview, almost everybody has a story like that. Mm-hmm. They have a ghost story. They have a an unexplained they have an unexplained phenomena story they have a story of of all of a sudden knowing something they had no way of knowing and they're for the most part we are afraid to tell those stories because we don't want to get laughed at yeah but you put people in a safe space and they'll open up and they'll start to tell those stories and you hear those stories from pagans you hear those stories from Christians. You will hear those stories from atheists. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the the atheists may couch them in uh, in very naturalistic terms, but but the, um, the the ones who are being very honest will say, "Look, I don't believe this can be a some otherworldly creature, but I have no material explanation for what I saw." Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. See things as they are, not like you've always been told they're supposed to be. So you've been on your path for a soup like a long time. Can you talk about what got you there? Like what was that thing that happened that you made you go, huh, this pagan lifestyle is for me? Oh boy, how long do you got? Plenty of time. I grew up in Tennessee. My parents attended a small fundamentalist Baptist church. I knew from 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 the you know, at first I was like any other kid. My parents tell me these things, therefore it must be true. Once I got old enough to start thinking about what I was being told, and by that I mean eight or nine years old, I started realizing that what I was hearing didn't always make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't have the breadth and depth of knowledge to fully understand it. Um, I tried to be a... Uh, I, I once I got out of, got away from home, I tried to be a, a, a liberal Christian and, and 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 found some good people there. And, and mm-hmm. like I said, my wife's a Methodist, and uh, I go to her church occasionally. They're good people who are doing good things. Um, but I couldn't believe what I was told I had to believe. At the same time, the where I lived, the woods literally were 20 feet outside my back door. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time in the woods. There was magic in the woods. Yeah, absolutely. The woods were a safe place. Um, 
And that gave me this love of nature and a feeling that the divine is in nature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to age 31, and I met a Wiccan for the first time. Mm-hmm. And he explained to me their ideas, and I heard, oh, magic is real. There is a goddess as well as a god, and nature is sacred. I like this. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to be a Wiccan. Um, I tried to be a Wiccan for eight years, and it didn't work. Wow. Uh, part of that was that Wicca really wasn't really Wicca really didn't speak to me. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no knocks against it. It just wasn't what I was looking for. I needed to find druidry. But more important than being finding the wrong path, I hadn't dealt with the religious issues from my childhood. And I bounced around for eight years. And the Thanksgiving night of 2001, I had an epiphany. And I don't know who it was or, or what group of deities it was, but somebody hit me upside the head and said, either get serious about this or move on. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know exactly what get serious meant, but I could see what move move on meant and move on meant going back to the Christian church. And I had this vision of me being, you know, 60 years old uh, sitting in a pew in some nondescript Protestant church bored out of my mind. Oh, dear. I got serious. <laughs> Good decision. And Good I, I went back and I, um, I read some, I read some, uh, uh, some more mainstream Christian writing that, that let me know that all those things I had been taught in that Baptist church all those years really is a very small minority opinion among in, within Christianity. I did some reading. I did some Buddhist reading. Um, I um, I came across Joseph Campbell, and I had some issues with Joseph Campbell and his monomyth. But at that time, Joseph Campbell and his idea of uh, 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 religion is myth- in mythology was exactly what I needed to hear, mm-hmm. and I I spent about a year reading and reading and reading and meditating and praying, and at the end of that year, I had made a lot of progress, and those those, those issues from my fundamentalist upbringing weren't gone, but they were on their way to being gone. And I knew I needed a group if I was going to go any further. I'd gone as far as I could go on my own. And I knew I didn't want a Wiccan coven. At the time, there were no Druid groves of any description in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Somewhere in my reading, I had heard about CUPS, the Covenant of Unitarian Universalist Pagans. And I figured that would be a... um, I figured that would be a, 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 a safe place to start, and I went to uh, – I got on the web, the, the, the web and found uh, – uh, there was a CUPS group in Denton, which is about 30 miles away from me, and 
I went there for Imbolc 2003 to check it out, and, um, and I never left. And from there, I, I joined the group. I was elected an officer. I needed some training, so I signed up for the OBOD course. I worked all the way through that. Um, started blogging. Um, met some people. Started going to pagan conferences. Uh, all of a sudden, I've got books, and people are inviting me to be a guest on their podcasts. <laughs> I like how you you bridged the the first site with the story of how you came into being a pagan in the first place, where your first site was telling you very clearly this is the way forward, and this is what it's going to look like if you don't <laughs> if you yeah. don't accept what's in front of you. Yep. And I, I I really I I can't tell you how much I appreciate that because. Um, not only were you you given this this understanding, but it's not just for you. It's everybody has access to that first site. Everybody has access to that second site. And what how good or poorly you're you're able to integrate it into your life is is an individual individual thing. The point is is that it's everybody's got it available. Everybody can have it unlocked. You just got to be able to listen to it to to work with it. Everybody does, and and that's really one of the, it's a theme in our, the writing. It's especially a theme in the uh, um, the path of paganism. My first book is the um, the primacy of experience. One of the problems I had with the fundamentalism I was taught was first it was it was the inerrancy of scripture when when scripture is clearly not inerrant. Uh, Genesis is not literally true. Um, all kinds of other stuff that we're, that we're not going to get into, um, <laughs> and all of these, this, this, the whole idea that you need to, you just need to obey. Uh, other people know better than you. Uh, you need to listen to the preacher. Uh, you need to listen to the, uh, uh, the, the, the these evangelists who've written these books. And, and uh, most of all, you need to listen to the Bible. Um, no. Um, I need to listen to, I need to listen to what, I need to listen to what what I'm seeing, to what I'm hearing. Uh, I need to I need to pay attention to my own experiences. Every religious every religious work is the record or the interpretation of someone's religious experience. What about my religious experience? What about your religious experience? Doesn't mean we can't misinterpret those experiences because we can. And um, um, as, as I like to tell people, um, your experiences are 100% true. You feel what you feel. You see what you see. You hear what you hear. That's at first sight. The problem is when you go to interpret those experiences and your experience. Your, your experience may be true. Your interpretation may be more or less accurate. So again, I see a mysterious light in the night. Um, 
maybe that's um, one of the fair folk. Uh, maybe it's um, maybe it's a ghost. Uh, maybe it's my neighbor playing with a flashlight. Different interpretations can be more or less accurate, but that experience. Never let anybody invalidate your experiences. Um, there is a um, there's a meme I see that and that that that's that every now and then that's half true. It says that um, um, religion is somebody else's experience, spirituality is your own experience. Uh, that's an over that that's this is flat out wrong. Religion is the accumulated wisdom of our ancestors. Thank uh, you. As to what works well, what doesn't work well, how do you interact with this deity, uh, how do you get this magical effect? Um, religion is the accumulated wisdom of our ancestors. But still, if you practice it. If you, if you practice it properly, you can have your own experiences, and you can draw your own conclusions from them, and your job then becomes to figure out how those experiences fit into your overall worldview, your overall assumptions about the world and the way it works, and, and then, then what do you do from there? And you know, it's, it's not that every... And, and I'm rambling a bit here, but it's not that every path is a valid path. Every you know, uh, uh, every idea is, is equally true. It's not. But your experiences are real. Go through a process of discernment to try to figure out what they mean. Interpret them interpret them as accurately as you can. Figure out what they mean. Figure out what you're supposed to do in response to them. And then you do the whole thing over again. <laughs> I think that's the part where a lot of people get really tripped up is the, and then you do it all over again. Cause I, that's true in a lot of spiritual practices that you constantly complete the same cycle over and over and over again, but you pick up different things every single time and you constantly grow from that cycle and you change. Um, but I want to go back to what you said about uh, religion as the collective workings of our ancestors and what they did in the past and spirituality is what you make it as your own. And I think that's really beautiful because you're right. You know, religion can be looked at and should be looked at the collection of the workings of our ancestors and what they did in the past and what worked for them. And you can draw your entire practice from that one thing and then take your spirituality and then make it your own take their experiences and integrate it into your own life and put your own flair on it. So many people in the pagan community and really throughout the, you know, throughout the whole wider society have been hurt in a religious environment. Um, they were hurt by the fundamentalist Baptists. They were hurt by the conservative Catholics. They were hurt by, um, you, you, you name it. Um, and they want to throw the baby of religion out with the dirty bathwater of dysfunctional human organizations. Mm. Um, and what they end up doing then, and I've had people tell me, well, paganism just means I can do whatever I want to. <laughs> You'll find out real quick that that's not true. 
the pro that means you're starting from ground zero and you're having to figure it all out on your own why do you even want to do that people have done these things before us let's look at what they did let's look at what they the experiences they had how they interpreted them how they implemented them how they worshiped how they practiced what worked for them let's start there and yes if if we have uh, some experience that tells us we should go we should add to that let's do it uh, again this is not um, this is not Orthodox Christianity, small o, Orthodox Christianity that that says everything is, um, you know, I forget what their their terminology is, but but it's, it's you know, delivered once and sealed, and revelation revelation is sealed, right. and and it's all set, and we can never change it. No, a good religion is a living religion, mm -hmm. but don't start from ground zero. Start from where your ancestors left off. Pick it up advance it further and build a higher foundation for the people who come after you. Right. Because your spirituality will become your living ancestors religion. And, and there's always one thing that I say on this show that will get me angry emails. And this might actually be that thing for this show. So bear with me, you guys. <laughs> if you come from a Christian or Catholic background and maybe it was a negative experience maybe you suffered abuse within the clergy maybe you just had an awful congregation that wasn't very supportive look at the structure of how a christian church operates how a sunday morning operates you walk in you greet everybody you say hello maybe there's a, a brunch that happens but you go in you read scripture you talk about the scripture, you sing some hymns, you say some prayers, you burn some herbs. There is your basic structure for a ritual that you can do as a pagan. You walk into a ritual center, you greet everybody, you say hello, maybe say some, uh, hug each other. If you're following a specific path, like the Norse path, you know, we have the Havamal or we have the Voluspa that we can talk about a passage in there. We can talk about what maybe it means to us, how we can use it to enrich our lives. We maybe sing some songs from Wardruna or Skald or whoever happens to sing Norse songs for us or songs that we made up ourselves. And then we close ritual, we have brunch and we go home. Same structure. Pull from what you know, but make it your own. Well, actually, Caitlin, I got a couple. I got, I got several questions. Um, so <laughs> the question I have for John is, uh, um, you said don't let anybody invalidate your experience. So how do you square that up against um, making sure that you vetted everything well? How, how do you reconcile those two things that need to be reconciled it's not easy okay um you have to be a little dispassionate about it and that's heard about something that's an ecstatic experience about which you are very passionate mm -hmm. um you have to start with the with the mundane explanations um you have to walk through everything um I've got a blog post on uh, on, on discernment from 
a couple years ago that um, uh, I, I wish I could remember the whole thing, and I just I, I just walked walk through that. But um, <laughs> you need to look at what happened, the facts. Um, what did you see? What did you hear? What did you feel? Um, get the facts and get that down as quickly as you can after it happens because memories are fallible and the further away you get from the original experience in time, the more fallible your memory becomes. Get the facts down in, in a hurry. Um, put them into context. Um, I've had people tell me um, – I've had people tell me they thought they were being bothered by demons because that was the only context they had for uh, for a, a rough spiritual experience. Well, maybe that is a demon. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's an ancestor trying to get your attention. Maybe it's a god trying to get your attention. Uh, maybe it's, it's something else. Uh, you need that context, and that's, again, that's another reason why we need – that building block of religion so we have a context for these because if we don't have a pagan context we don't have a polytheist animist context for our experiences we'll put them in the context of what we know which is typically protestant christianity in this country and that's not going to be helpful mm. um you look at possible explanations um Look for simple explanations. Uh, look for things that, again, that 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 add up. Does it? If you think you're hearing from, uh, you know, I've worked with the Morrigan long enough. I pretty much know her voice now. Um, I don't know Caridwin's voice that well. So if if I hear something and I think that's from Caridwin, okay, I need to ask myself: Is this is what I'm hearing? in alignment with what we know about Caridwin, both what, what we know about her from ancient times and what her contemporary followers are talking about now. Is that in alignment? Well, maybe that is Caridwin. Hmm. Um, I have people all the time come to me, and, oh, the Morrigan wants me to do this lovely nurturing thing, and, and are you sure you're talking to the Morrigan? Because that doesn't sound like the Battle Raven to me. <laughs> is that is that fall into the domain of invalidating their experience, though. I guess that was the nature of, of my question. No, that's that. Okay. I'm glad you raised that question. I don't invalidate their experience. I don't tell them you didn't hear this. Mm -hmm. The question I have is, are you sure the origin is what you think it is? Very good distinction. Um, and we tend to jump from one to the other. We've got to step back and this is what happened. This is where I think it came from. This is what I think it means. Hmm. Caitlin, can I throw in there to your, your example? It, it's funny because you were able to cite examples uh, parallel based on books, but um, half of your traditions don't have a written tradition. They don't have any books to rely on so we have to be careful not to be centric or too much gravitas on books in their own right or just because they are books i should say technically speaking <laughs> half of them all isn't a religious text either so we have there to be careful to rely on that mm -hmm. the, um, this is true but at what point 
do you allow, like, how do you find that balance then, you know, because that is like with the Havamal and I, I, I can't really talk about the, the Caro because it is a verbal tradition, all of it. And it's, most of it is still down in the Andes. All I have to go off of is what you've given me. And that's based off of my not so meticulous note taking. And so I have to go off of my fellow Ayu as well and be like, hey, so I have a couple of holes in my notes. Right. Can you help me fill in the blank? I think but for me, for me, really, the difference is um, when I hear someone talking about reading the scriptures that is supposedly an unchangeable word of God, where when we can talk about myths and stories that have been written down, we can talk about historical context without it being an unchangeable thing or supposedly unchangeable thing. It's not a holy text of itself. It's a learning aid, and it's definitely a way of recording memory and other people's experience, but it is not a holy word that cannot be unchanged. Right. I let me let me try to explain that a little better. I mean, I I used the the Christian context of how they they set up their Sundays and how they run them. Right. And you're you're using I, it as I, a social I, comparison. Well, and I I adapt. I took words from the Christian context and tried to adapt them into a pagan worldview where it doesn't necessarily fit. A lot of <laughs> Right. A lot of a lot a lot a lot of paths don't have scripture. They don't right. have a a book or something that they can turn to that is called scripture or word of God or right. anything like that. And that's kind of the reason I wanted to bring that up is just because of that point. And and yeah. and like John was saying there, I think that it's important that we build upon and understand the experiences of people that have come before us. Mm -hmm. I'm just cautious to use words that imply a lockstep that people have to conform to, if that makes sense. Right. And I'm not, I'm not saying you have to conform to whoever your priest is or priestess and what they say, you know, make it yeah. malleable, make it fit to who you are and your path. And if it doesn't fit, then it doesn't fit. Don't try to force it. Right. That's uh, just basically wanting to make that distinction a little bit. That's all. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. No, thank you for that. I, I appreciate um, that we had that conversation because I wanted to turn around to uh, your experience, John, with, with the green bird, because it would have been incredibly easy to just out of hand say, ah, you know, any amount of rationalization instead of saying, nope, this is what it was, and being truthful and honest with not only yourself, but your readers, regardless of their reaction of this was my first sight, take it for what you will, but this is what this is. Yeah. Bill, trust me, I went through every possible materialist explanation that I could, I could, um, was it a, um, you know, it, again, it was, it was, there was, there's a field of birds most of whom were the usual gray and brown. And here's this one green bird there. Only it's not a parakeet. It's not a tropical bird. It's glowing in a way that ordinary birds do not glow. Um, are my eyes playing tricks on me? So, I look, at, so I, I look at the bird, and it's glowing green. I look away. I see normal. I look back. That one bird's still glowing green. 
uh, I went through a whole list of things that it could have been, and I'm left with no materialist explanation for that. And therefore, the most rational explanation is that what I saw is either a um, um, an otherworldly bird that made its way into our world or a bird from this world that made its way into some liminal zone um, between here and there that caused it to glow green. Um, that again, I'm, that's that's a good example though of the of the first sight. Uh, I saw what I saw, and you know I've had people say I don't believe you. Um, and they don't call me a liar, but they say I think you're mistaken. Okay, fine. I, I get it. I'm asking you to believe something that your foundational assumptions about the world and the way it works says can't happen. Um, I'm telling you this is what I saw, and nobody's. I'm not going to let anybody tell me that it was otherwise. I think this is where the rubber meets the road on, on religion and spirituality, though, because um, – and this takes trust – not just not just in our gods that, that they're sending us clear messages or our ancestors or our Veti or our spirits. This takes trust in ourselves that our ability to see that our, our model of reality works. And like you said, religion is a building up from the ancestors. And so this is like a chain that reaches back as well as is present in the moment too. It is. And what is also a challenge because so much of religion is not the ex moments of ecstasy and the moments of otherworldly experiences. So 98% of religion is done here in this world. Mm -hmm. it, is, um, it is stopping during the day and using your very tangible mouth to say very tangible words of, uh, of worship and praise to your gods. It is going outside and pouring some very tangible wine onto the ground uh, as a libation to, uh, you know, to, to your ancestors. It is living, it's living your life in alignment with the virtues that your tradition says are, are most valuable. Um, and it's doing all these things day in and day out even when you don't see a, a, a green glowing bird, even when the Morrigan doesn't pop into your head and make ominous threats if you don't get a book written. Um, <laughs> it's doing these things day in and day out, the ordinary things that, um, that provide the foundation for these wider experiences. So you're telling me is it's discipline and duty? Ah, <laughs> oh, damn! That's boring. Well, I think boring. the good stuff. It's it's boring, but it's necessary. I think Sarenth and and Caitlin and I. The analogy we always use is the amusement park ride. For the few minutes of woo, you spend a lot of time standing in line, shuffling forward at a slow pace. <laughs> you really do, and you're and you're never guaranteed whether that uh, that amusement park ride is going to have. Um, uh, three or four loop-de-loops, or if it's going to be the, the little kid's train that goes around in a circle. Um, <laughs> you just don't know because these experiences cannot be commanded. Um, they come in their own time, and um, 
with the uh, at the discretion of the gods and spirits who facilitate them. That's a very good point. Um, that you can't force these experiences. And I, I think it's telling that a lot of the experiences you've shared with us tonight are unbidden and were pushed on you. Um, not that necessarily that has to be the case for every spiritual experience. Um, there was something I wanted to, to tap into while we're talking on that subject, because um, it's, it's not just that you're standing in line and you're shuffling, like you're doing important spiritual work while you're standing in line, waiting for this roller coaster to say, okay, Absolutely. here's your ticket, bud. Um, Absolutely. It's, it's not just that you're, you know, oh, well, this is the mundane and this is the spiritual and the twain only meet when you occasionally get on the roller coaster. The entire experience is a spiritual experience. It's a question of, are you involved in it or are you doing it by rote? You know, which happens, especially in, in my experience with uh, Christians and Christianity. At what point are you mouthing the words versus expressing the prayer? Yeah. There's a place for rote prayer. Uh, there mm-hmm. is a the the my prayer my my morning prayers are are very rote. Um, I, I'm a druid. Um, I um, I offer peace to the quarters. Um, I have a prayer to uh, uh, to Maat, the Egyptian goddess Maat, for for peace and justice. Um, and I say the druid's prayer. And that's my morning prayer that I've done every morning, almost every morning, for about the past eight years. It's very rote because it's done first thing in the morning when I'm I'm barely awake, and um, and that's about all I can manage early in the morning. But there's a place for that because when you when you say the same words over and over again, you start to internalize them. Now the problem comes when you start when it's no longer. Um, that holy repetition, but it just becomes going through the motion. That's a different thing. But there's certainly uh, 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 rote prayer is a is a very useful tool. And again, I'd be lost in the mornings without it. Oh no, I'm I'm right there with you. Like okay. rote, rote prayer is like the thing we do as a family. <laughs> like good. we have we have good, morning good. prayers, we have meal prayers, we have night prayers. Like my two year old daughter will come up shrieking and saying night prayers, night prayers, and yeah. Um, so please do not think I'm knocking rote prayer. Rote prayer is one thing, but mouthing prayers for the sake of mouthing prayers because it's something you've always done instead of ha- having that exchange. That's kind yes. of what I'm getting toward. Yes, completely agree. Okay. Do you think uh, um, some of what we experience is um, in the community at large is people trying to force those experiences? I mean, it occurs to me when I hear you say that, that that that's where you get a lot of people that are like the ayahuasca craze of the last few years and, and things like that, where people are really trying to force those experiences. Um, and is, uh, you know, are they craving it? Is that why they're forcing it? I don't understand, but um, I don't know. Do you think that's a response? Is that a similar thing going on? I I, I think... And I'm not one. I'm really not not qualified to speak on ayahuasca. Um, I'm. I have a. Um, I have a. Uh, I have a fear of heavy entheogens, um, and I'm have never done it, and not likely to. I have a friend who has done it and says it was 
you know, life, you know, just an amazing experience. And, um, and, and I take her at her word. Uh, no, I don't know that. No, I don't take that. No, that, that sounds too weak. Um, <laughs> I, I absolutely, I, I, I have heard her stories and I absolutely agree with her. And I think that was a wonderful thing for her. Um, and she has her own reasons for doing that, that aren't, that, and that, that story is not mine to tell. Sure. Um, I think some people are craving experiences. I think I think there's part of most of us that want those experiences. Where I see the problem in the wider pagan community is the people who haven't had them but feel like they should, mm -hmm. and therefore something is wrong with them, or they're not doing it right, or or maybe it's not all real. I went eight years of dabbling, and once I got serious, it was five years before I had my first ecstatic experience. It was three more years before I had my second. They've come much more frequently since then. Um, the experiences are as powerful and as meaningful as they are. They are not the primary goal. The primary goal is to live a virtuous life and to leave the world a better place than you found it. Um, now, in the course of doing this, we may very well have these ecstatic experiences. I, I, I'm, I, am, I am thankful for mine. Um, and I, am, I certainly sympathize with those who say, you say these things like they're so great, I want to do it too. Um, I, can t I, can tell you, <laughs> I can tell you the steps to do to make it more likely. Um, I can put you I – can, I can put you in a ritual setting that will, that will facilitate an experience. At the end of the day – whether you have that experience or not comes down to the gods and spirits, not down to me. Oh, oh and by the way, these things are not amusement park rides. <laughs> they can be terrifying. Mm -hmm. And usually they come with work assignments. Right. Oh, um, gosh, yes. I know people who have had some they got a peek behind the curtain. What they saw scared them so badly they went running in terror. And mm. they will not do what I do because it scared them. Mm -hmm. And, okay, it's not for everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. But also, again, these things aren't there for our amusement. Uh, they are... They're holy experiences um, that are done almost always. They're not done to say, oh, you're doing okay and life is going to work out and just don't worry about it. They're, they're, you know, it's, it's the Morgan grabbing you by the back of the neck and said, look, there's a battle going on. Here's a spear. There's the front lines. You know, head that way. <laughs> um, you're a man of my own heart. <laughs> the, um, um, or it's um, here's this organization that needs to be built. You're now its leader. Go do it. Um, or 
here is this um, um, here is this um, uh, uh, person who is not listening to me. They need to hear a voice from this world. You go give them this message, uh, and you hope that you know. You hope that you know the messenger doesn't get shot. Yeah, um, none of us have ever had that happen to them ever. <laughs> nope. Mm-mm. So again, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. Yeah, especially in the produce section at the grocery store. <laughs> Why I, am I, I talking am, to this person at three in the morning about their their family? Yeah, weird. I am really glad that you say that a lot of times these ecstatic experiences come with homework because it's true. It really, really is true. It's these And so often I I see these, what I call weekend warriors at pagan events that are weekend pagans that show up just for the events and all the glitz and glamour and think they can go to rituals and be perfectly healed from all their demons of whatever and then go on happy throughout the world without actually taking the message with them. And that's, that's something that I... I want people to start realizing that this uh, spirituality isn't just a religion. It's not just saying prayers and doing offerings. It's, it's your lifestyle. It's integrating these philosophies, these ideals into your life and actively changing yourself to fit those things, to make your life and the lives of others around you better and to make the world better. You know, we're not just putting a bandaid on it and calling it good. We're, we're working together to make a better place. Actually, John, what I'm really, I, I echo what Caitlin's saying, and I also am really glad to hear you say, because I think it's really important to say that there's not something wrong with you if you have not had one of these ecstatic experiences. Not everybody has a patron deity. Not everyone has constant ecstatic experiences. This is something that uh, happens to some people sometimes, and, and it is not, you're not wrong. You're not doing something wrong. You're not a terrible person. If you haven't had these experiences, that's not, uh, that's not how that works. No, it that, that was something that had to be said. I was really, I'm really glad that you said it. I thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Especially since you're talking about, about the Morgan and the storms that are coming. I love how your piece mm-hmm. Um, divvies up between the practical skills that we need to to collate and integrate into our lives, and taking the 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 first sight and the second sight and making something together with them. That it just really like got me right here, right in the chest, because that's that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where religion and spirituality meet us here in this meat space, and that's. You know, to me, that's really where we show the Earth Mother, hey, we're willing to live with you, and this is how we're going to do it. Um, I like how you bring these things together, both in the conversations we've had and the articles you write. Um, it's, it's something that I, I deeply appreciate. It's a throughput through most of your work that I've I've been reading that, yes, there is this mundane, very practical side and then there's this very spiritual side, and they are t- they're not opposed. They are that's the same coin, guys. <laughs> it really is. Um, the 
and honestly, that's been one of um, that's been one. It's really it's one of my ongoing. I won't call it a struggle. Let's call it a project. There, in our wider culture, there is the idea that religion is something that's personal, that you're supposed to keep to yourself, um, and um, it's something you do on Sunday mornings, or, uh, or, or, or in our case, you know, eight times a year, or, or however, however often your tradition has a, right. uh, has a holy day or a celebration, and, and you know, that's. That's when we meet to reaffirm who we are, to reaffirm the bonds between ourselves, uh, between our community and our gods, our ancestors, the spirits of the land. Um, that's when we recharge our batteries, but we recharge the batteries so that we can live as pagans, as heathens, as druids, as witches in the ordinary world, uh, not being the pagan equivalent of that guy at work who is always quoting Bible verses and inviting everybody to church with him, but the person who who lives out those pagan values of of hospitality and reciprocity and um, uh, uh, straightforwardness and um, honesty and compassion and all of those things that are so important to us um, that need to be a part of our daily lives, uh, not just our lives uh, um, you know, when we're standing in circle. And I also think it's important to point out that you should do those things not of a place of a toxic ego, but as setting an example for those that follow you. You know, yes. don't do it because there's a camera on you. Do it because that's what you're supposed to do. Yes. Yeah, and it's all about internalizing it so that it becomes second nature. And that's not easy, particularly in this culture where the dominant religion is Christianity, and they scream they're the only way, and the they don't call themselves a religion, but for our purposes they kind of are. The second loudest religion is the atheists who are screaming there are no gods, and, uh, and, and, and it's all just brain chemicals. Um, and we're at odds with that, and it's so easy to get pulled into what everybody else is doing. If we don't keep up our daily practice, prayer, meditation, offerings, uh, reading, whether you're reading, um, whether you're reading um, what passes for sacred texts in in in, in the pagan <laughs> world, or <laughs> if you're reading. Um, uh, you know my book or your book or um, 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 I just got uh, Courtney Weber's new Oregon book. I haven't even opened it up yet. If you're re reading something like that, um, we're, we're, we're keeping our our minds focused on what's most important to us, so it stays important to us and doesn't get washed away in the uh, um, in, in the message to um, that what's really important is to you know go buy more stuff. <laughs> and I'll, I'll even extend that reading list into the fictional realms because like you yourself yes. have quoted Terry Pratchett a few times and one of my all-time heroes and idols is Neil Gaiman and his just his moralistic views on the world and his imagination is phenomenal but there are very good lessons and good teachings within those fictional worlds so pay attention there too. Absolutely. Well 
John, I know we, we could keep you talking all evening, but I know you have things that you need to do. Uh, we would be so glad to have you back on anytime that mm-hmm. you want. I'm, I'm always uh, amazed by how much that you write and how many things spring forth from your mind and, and how nuanced they are. And so there's always plenty to talk about. And we'd be glad to have you back anytime you'd like. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you thank for you. coming on. It's yeah, been a wonderful Thank you so conversation. much for joining this, us. This has been very enjoyable, and uh, uh, I, I appreciate you having me on. Well, thank you very much. I hope you have a good evening. All right. Thank you, folks. Thank you, everybody that's listening, and uh, um, we will talk to you next time. Word.